0: We are, uh, today we are tra- starting chapter 31, Genesis 31. And, uh, we are drawing towards the conclusion of, uh, I have to redirect my podium here a little bit. Uh, we're drawing to the conclusion of Jacob's sojourn in the land of Haran. And, uh, Last week we looked at uh, the end of chapter uh, thirty. Um, we looked at uh, uh, how Jacob handled his uh his new employment situation with his uh, with uh, Laban, his uh, new contract, if you will, and how he approached that and uh, uh, As we'll see this week, all does not go well on the home front. (laughs) So, uh, before we look at the passage that we're going to look at today, let's review. Uh, Last week, what do you remember from last week, other than the fact that that we uh, had a variety of opinions in our class about a variety of things which we should expect in a passage that's that difficult. So... Striped sticks make striped goats. Striped sticks make striped. That's the principle. That's the application we need to remember. So, in your goat herd this week, <laughs> how many of <have> you? <laughs> well, it's uh, kind of funny when a bunch of us city slickers try to talk about animal husbandry. You know, it's a, we're, <laughs> there's a little bit of speculation going on there. I'm sure, but. So. Yes, sir. Good, good. Did you figure it all out? I don't know. <laughs> I was
1: thinking, was there anything that would uh, indicate that what Jacob did was a faith action?
2: Us. Uh,
1: and I didn't yeah. really see him, but uh-huh. he had had the dream that God was, for the second father was going to happen. And then I was thinking, okay... If you place stuff in front of them, that means that what happens in the outcome is determined by environmental better than genetic. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. Our, that's our resident scientist over here. <laughs> and, I, and my good feel is God
1: was going to do this. And Jacob was trying to help him. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think anything. <laughs> That he did that really affected the outcome. I see something that God did that affected the outcome, and I don't see a link between. uh, Maybe I'm missing something.
0: You know, I think that's the conclusion I reached too. I I think there. I think because the Lord spends so much time talking about it, and then He says, "So Jacob got you know rich, and all this other stuff happened." There's it looks like there's some correlation or there's some connection. But but it just seems to me that that if there if there is any connection, it's just the connection that God said, well, this is what Jacob's doing and I'm just going to use it and do it. <laughs> and God just does it. So, yeah, I think. And, and this will become clearer as we go forward into today's passage. It will become clearer. But ultimately, it's just the Lord doing it because the Lord's going to do it. Yeah. I kind
1: of looked at it and I to things,
0: it, really? Uh, really?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I thought of it as two ways, but it, it doesn't show up anywhere else. But if it was a cultural thing, and that was their way of explaining you know, how these strikes are, and then someone just saw it and went, Well, that has that to be the way it occurred. And so that was their way of explaining what was going on. The other one, Jason's Okay.
2: He's.
1: Mess with me in one last. I'm gonna put all these sticks out there, and he's gonna try that when I leave. his mind. Dad didn't agree with you.
0: That's a perspective I hadn't seen in the commentary. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Value special, uh, they liked, they that was actually the and when took the <coughs> with him, took the When Jacob took
0: it. When Jacob, took, Jacob, it. Jacob it. took it, okay. Uhhuh. So yeah.
1: that's kind of an insight about what they received and, uh, uh-huh. and how that turned around. Huh. And then the, the symbology of putting striped sticks in near the water. It's <coughs> a clean smell. And then we left the strong in mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. rather, he barely did what he was supposed to do with life. So he, he spent more time with the husbandry, with, with what he wanted to, to know. Okay. So that was that's Jacob's thought was I'll spend the extra on mine, but not obviously the minimum on Laban's. Yeah.
0: You know, that's the impression we get from chapter thirty. Mm-hmm. I think when we get into chapter thirty-one, we may view it a little differently. <laughs> but, yeah, that is the impression we get from chapter 30. How, about,
2: how may I have to help me on my biology?
1: <laughs>
2: if, if the stripe and the speckled are the recessive genes, but he only, it, it may have been his way of you know, saying all this, what he was really doing was taking out the stripe and the speckled and mating them with each other. So, if they were both recessive, wouldn't that bring the word stripe and the speckled all the time? So he was repeating that over and over by making those together. So he was increasing his flock. Plus, every time one out of four happened in the other flock, he would bring that one in. And gradually, since the speckled and striped weren't mating with the rest of them, his was growing and he was pulling sheep out of labor's flock all along. So that may have been what really happened. Uh,
0: That is obviously to some degree, I think, what was going on. But we'll find out that... That something even more. If we go on into chapter thirty-one, we're going to find out something more than that was going on. That's uh, that is really instructive. So, yeah, that certainly uh, was part of it, part of what was going on. He he really had a pretty good arrangement there. He had a good thing going, considering the fact that, particularly considering the fact that this guy was a good farmer, he knew how to do all this stuff. And so, but but what we're left with, I think, at the end of last week, what we're left with is the impression of this. This man who's just, you know, he's just he's got his way of doing things. He's going to, you know, he's going to he's going to make a success out of life just any way he can. And he's after it and he's going. And there's just no mention of God in there anywhere. Do you know It's just God doesn't seem to be playing a role. OK, well, we get a totally different picture of things when we get into chapter 31. So without any further delay, let's do that. Let's pick it up in uh, chapter 31. Verse 1, he says, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all this wealth. Uh, the wealth you're talking about, incidentally, there is back in verse 43. Let me read that. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So, the, so in six years' time, this guy has gone from nothing to exceedingly great wealth. And Laban's sons are saying, he got that at dad's expense. Okay? Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field, and said to them, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus... The stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating, that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. He said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped and speckled and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, And return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you well so we finally reached the climax here (laughs) okay and the story here begins this part of the story begins with uh, with Jacob discovering that Laban's sons are uh, a little bit upset about his prosperity and the appearance at least that it has come at the expense of their father and, and Jacob then also observes that Laban's attitude towards him is not as it had formerly been. Uh, you'll notice the word "friendly" there is in italics, probably in your translation, which means it's not in the original; it's been added there by the translators. Uh, it, that may be a that may be a little bit <laughs> of a stretch. We might think to think of Laban as friendly towards Jacob, but he really was. Uh, in many respects, but that has now changed, and Jacob has detected that. Okay. Now, why would why would Laban's sons be so upset with what appears to them that Jacob has somehow, in some unethical way, it, it seems like they they seem to imply anyway, has in some unethical way managed to steal. All of their father's wealth. Why would that be particularly troubling to them?
2: He's messing
0: with their inheritance. <laughs> He's messing with their inheritance. Okay. Now you have to remember how things have changed over a period of twenty years. We start out. We discovered in last week and last week's passage or the week before, we discovered that when Jacob came to Laban, what did Laban have? Little. Very little. Yeah. He had very little. And over the 14 years that Jacob worked uh, just basically on the basis of room and board for Jacob, uh, excuse me, Jacob worked for Laban. Laban became exceedingly wealthy. He became very prosperous. OK, but it was all because of Jacob and it was all because of Jacob's work. OK, he had little when Jacob came. And then at the end of 14 years, he has a great deal. Now we're six years later. And Laban's back to ground zero again, right? Okay. So, so in a real sense, uh, if, if we look back at chapter 30 and we see what Jacob did, we go, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was doing something a little, a little questionable there. But, but as we read on in chapter 31, we understand who actually transferred the wealth from Laban to Jacob. God did. He says it very clearly, doesn't he? He says the Lord did this. God transferred your father's wealth to me, okay? And so, so we understand then what happens is back in chapter 30, in chapter 30 where we were looking last week, it was all very confusing, wasn't it? We struggled last week trying to get a handle on that passage, understand that passage, and it was all very confusing to us. And the reason it was very confusing to us is because we were looking at things from a human perspective, right? There wasn't a whole lot of spiritual perspective last week. It was just we were looking at things and this is the way things were happening. And it was very hard to understand what was happening. And any spiritual lesson that we happen to draw from last week, we draw by cheating a little bit and pulling things out of chapter 31 or other things that we know from Scripture. But really, when you look at chapter 30 and the things that are unfolding in chapter 30, it's very difficult to understand because we're looking from a human perspective. And what happens now when we get to chapter 31 is we get the spiritual context for what happened in chapter 30. In chapter 31, we get the explanation from God or the explanation that God was behind all this and God was moving and God was moving. So whatever Jacob was doing and whether or not Jacob understood what he was doing. In reality, we now know, having read the first 16 verses of chapter 31, we now understand that God was really at work here, that the God of Bethel was keeping his promise. OK, and and so when Laban's sons now are all distressed or disturbed at what's happened, uh, that this that this transfer of wealth has taken place, we will understand We'll we'll come to discover as we go through the verses that we're looking at today, that there are really uh, uh, there are really kind of three reasons why this transfer of wealth has taken place. And the first and primary reason, of course, is that God has blessed Jacob and that God is going to bless Jacob and God's just about blessing Jacob. OK, so that's the obvious, the first thing. But there are a couple things in Laban's behavior, in Laban's conduct that lead to the transfer of wealth from Laban to Jacob. So it's really not Jacob's fault that he's grown wealthy while Laban has been impoverished. OK, it's not Jacob's fault. It's God blessing Jacob, and it's partially Laban's fault because of Laban's actions and Laban's behavior and I'll explain that as we go on so so he he discovers that Laban's sons now are upset because they they're losing their inheritance, and they're not real crazy about this, but then he also discovers that that Laban's attitude or he observes that Laban's attitude, the word there's countenance, he says his countenance has changed, his countenance is not as it was formerly. And the idea is, and I think the translators are probably uh, fairly uh, uh, accurate there when they insert the word friendly in italics to give us some understanding. We saw that when when Laban first encountered Jacob there at the well, that friendliness that he had. And, and he has this tremendous, you know, outward display of friendliness towards Jacob. And this has been his conduct or his demeanor for many years. But now as time progresses, and this transfer of wealth from Jacob from Laban to Jacob begins to take place, his attitude begins to change. Now, from Jacob's perspective, how do you view that? How would Jacob view this change of circumstances? Why? Well
1: Laban is a deceptive man. And so, if he's changed his wages ten times, it's going to
0: matter of time until he just doesn't give him anything. Yeah, he's actually, I think Jacob's in a very precarious situation right here. I think he's in a very dangerous situation. Remember the way Laban treated him when they were friends. What will Laban act like with somebody he considers his enemy or his adversary? Yeah. You know? I think Jacob's in a very dangerous position here. Um, it, during this period of time, when Laban has been at least outwardly friendly towards Jacob, he's been willing to switch wise on him, change his wages ten times, cheat him every time he got a chance, and that's when he liked him. <laughs> you know? And in our minds, we kind of go, uh, is that possible? Can somebody really... Well, yes, it is possible. I've known people like that. Have you known people like that? I have. Yeah. I remember one guy that comes to my mind <clears throat> that I knew for many, many years. And, uh, and and he was a very gregarious, outgoing, you know, slap you on the back type of guy. Just tremendously friendly guy. But he was always taking advantage of you. Any chance he got, he'd take advantage of you. You know, and but he was so friendly, and he made you feel so good around him that you just kind of thought, "Well, that's okay, you know, I like the guy, and he likes me, and you know, and you know, so you just kind of overlooked the times when he would take advantage of you. But if you ever crossed him, if you ever criticized him, then you became his enemy. And then it's Katie barred the door. And I was on both sides of that guy's uh, uh, attitude at various points in my life. And it became very unpleasant when when this guy who I thought had been my friend turned out to be uh, eventually my enemy. We've probably all known people like that. Uh, But certainly this is the kind of guy that Laban is, you know, it's it's one thing to get along with him when he's your friend. And you just kind of put up with all this stuff because it's kind of a mutually beneficial uh, relationship. But when the guy becomes your adversary, it's time to think about a change of scenery. You know, it's time to think about a about a change of venue, if you will. Okay, and so this is the situation that Jacob finds himself in now. As he finds himself in this situation, he gets some indication of what he ought to do. How does he get that indication? Okay, God, God comes to him and God speaks. It doesn't even really say in verse three. It doesn't say how He said it or how it happened. He just says, "Then the Lord said to Jacob." So it's after this scenario, this or this change of circumstances has occurred, that. That God then comes to Jacob and tells Jacob, he says, uh, to return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So now he finally gets some specific direction uh, from the Lord as to what he's to do.
1: It appears one he close to
0: is Yeah. He doesn't seem to have a lot of friends, does he? Yeah, in the situation, yeah. So. One of the things that I observed about this, uh, as I was looking at the situation, is uh, is Jacob now has been in Haran for 20 years, and he needs God's direction in his life. And I was just thinking, how do we how do we know God's will? I was thinking about uh, when you when you have a when you have a like a, a conference or whatever with a bunch of young people in it, you know. High school or college age people, or young people, or whatever. Uh, one of the if you if you want to have a, a class or a seminar or a session where you get a lot of people coming to it, you you have a session on how to know the will of God, right? <laughs> okay, because young people are just dying to figure out how to know the will of God. Okay, and uh, to some degree, all of us really struggle with that. How do I know the will of God? And what we really like is to be, able, to be able to do with regard to the will of God what we do in other situations. We'd like to be able to just pull in the filling station, run in and grab a map, you know, and pull it out and open it up and there's the map, there's the road map and it just tells us which way to go, right? And that's how we wish we could know the will of God. Of course, it usually doesn't work that way, does it? I've observed in my own experience and from just looking at other people and other people's lives that that typically we discover God's will a couple of ways. One is, like Abraham, when Abraham discovered that he needed to go to Canaan, what happened? Now, I know it was a year ago we talked about this, folks, but you're you're not that old. Your memory isn't that bad. How did Abraham discover that he was to go to Canaan? God spoke to him just out of the blue, you know, presumably life was just going on. Everything was normal. Everything just going on fine. And just out of the blue, God comes in and says, I want you to get up, leave your family, leave everything and go to Canaan. OK, sometimes God speaks that way. Yes, sir. Didn't, he tell,
1: him to go
0: up didn't tell him where was going? going. That's true. He just told him get up and walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. But the point I was trying to make is that sometimes God's direction comes to us kind of out of the blue. You know, we're just sailing along in life and everything seems fine. And then God says, I want you to make a change. I want you to do something different. That requires great faith, right? But there are other times when when God wants to make a change in our life, but graciously before he speaks to us, he allows the circumstances to indicate to us that a change needs to be made. That's more often my experience. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had the Abraham experience, but more often I've had the Jacob experience, where the circumstances that I am in change. And it's God's way of getting my attention. See, God could have gotten Jacob to uh, Canaan in any way, in any particular way he could have done it, but the way he chooses to do it, and maybe it's just because Jacob was a little dense and so he needed to do it this way, is he allows this change of circumstances which causes Jacob to realize, I'm in a precarious situation here and I need to do something. And it's this point then that God speaks to him and says, it's time to go back home. It's time to go back to your fa- to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. And he says, I will be with you. Okay. Now, as I say, we don't know what context, as far as by the time we get to verse three, we don't know what context this message from God came. We don't know how it came. I believe that what uh, what is being relayed to us there in verse three is is the narrator's description of the dream, which Jacob later describes to his wives. But I'll explain that to you uh, as we go on as to why I think that. I think I'm in the minority in that, but uh, nevertheless. Uh, So then, uh, having this word from God, then Jacob sends and he calls his wives and he has a discussion with his wives. Okay, where does he do that? Out in the field by the flocks. What? Why out there? Why not in the comfort around the home fire? Excuse me, so nobody can hear him. Why? yeah, he one thing is he, and we'll see this as we go on next week. One thing is he can't let Laban know what he's planning, okay so he can't let any he can't let there be any little ears around that might hear something, overhear something, and say something, and the word get back to Laban, that Jacob's thinking about splitting. I I, I think it's very easy for us to underestimate how dangerous and how precarious is Jacob's situation. Because Jacob now possesses all this wealth that Laban once thought was his. If Laban finds out that Jacob is leaving... He has every motivation. He's no longer friends with him. He's an adversary. He's a competitor. He has every motivation to do something to recover his wealth. Okay, So he's in a very dangerous situation. So he has this conversation with his wives out in the fields where there's no risk that anybody will hear this conversation. And. And uh, so as, as we enter then into the actual conversation that Jacob has with his, uh, with his wives, uh, he begins by describing to them what we've already learned from the narrative. He begins by describing to them the situation as he sees it, as he perceives it, and how he's gotten to where he is. Okay? So, so uh, he, uh, he begins by just kind of assessing the situation, he says, look, this is what I have seen. I have seen, he says in, uh, in verse 5, he says, I've seen that your father's attitude, that it is not friendly towards me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. So, this is how I assess the situation. Rachel and Leah is, your father is not friendly towards me like he once was. But in spite of the fact that Laban is not friendly towards me, God is with me. Okay. Now, how does he know God is with him? God
1: him?
0: Because God told him. God says, I'm with you. And in fact, that's not the first time God said it, either, is it? Clear back at Bethel. God said, you go. You go up there, you do what you have to do, and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back to this place. He has the promise of God being with him. Now, what's interesting is when we get to chapter 32 and and uh, and Jacob is now returning back to Canaan and he's right. It's the night before he's going to encounter his brother. Okay. Big problem. Esau, big problem. Okay, And he's getting ready to encounter Esau. And so he prays. He talks to God. And when he talks to God, he refers to this promise of God's presence. But he doesn't say, God, you promised to be with me. He says, "You God, you promised to prosper me. Okay. What I want to point out to you here is that this whole concept of the presence of God is far more profound i think than we oftentimes give it credit okay when when god is saying i'm going to be with you it's it's not just you know okay i'm walking through life and god's right here by my side okay it's far more profound than that okay And as as we go on down through this passage, we're going to understand more and more about what it means to have God with you. And what struck me about this as I was thinking about this this week and meditating on this week is, is what a powerful prayer it is for us when we pray for another person and we pray just simply, God, be with them you know i i think oftentimes when we're praying for people and and they're in various situations or they're confronting various situations or whatever and so they've asked us to pray for them or maybe they haven't asked us to pray but we're praying for them and oftentimes i, I don't know about you but oftentimes i feel a little lost what do i pray what do i pray for people well Thankfully, in the New Testament, we have some prayers that give us some examples of some of the things that we can pray for people. Paul's got some great prayers. And of course, the prayers of Jesus are great prayers of things that we can pray for others. But it is not a trifle prayer to pray on someone's behalf. God, would you be with them? Because what we understand is Jacob knew that the presence of God meant a whole lot more than just God was going to be walking along beside him. Jacob realized that his entire well-being was wrapped up in the presence of God with him. So as he's confronting this terrible situation of having to face Esau, and we'll study that when we get to it, but as he's looking at this, uh, this terrifying encounter that he's about to have, with his brother Esau, who the last he heard wanted to kill him, as he's getting ready for that, the one thing he pleads is what? The presence of God. And so the presence of God with us, God being with us, is is really loaded with meaning and loaded with implications of God's care and his love and his nurture and his provision and his protection over our lives. And we'll see this now as we look on down through the passage how the presence of God demonstrated itself in the life of Jacob. Okay? So he says to his wives, he says, your your dad's attitude towards me has changed, but God is with me. And then he says, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Now, what do you do with that verse? <laughs> Gary was observing earlier that you know last in the last chapter it really didn't look that way, did it? But now he says to his wise, he says, "You know you know I have served." your father with all my strength. Have you guys ever tried to pull a stunt on your wife like that? <laughs> you, know, you know, where she knows a lot better than, uh, than uh, you want her to know about how you perform in a situation and you make a claim that you've done better than you've done. Our wives are usually pretty good at saying, well, you know, that's not quite how it went. <laughs> You you didn't really perform as well as you're claiming you performed. Okay, So I I take it from this verse that in spite of the impression that we got in chapter 30, that Jacob was just totally consumed with his own flock. That in reality, he really was a hard worker on behalf of Laban. Otherwise, I think his wives would have called his bluff here. Okay. Uh, But they but they recognize that and he appeals to that knowledge that they have of how hard he worked. Now, we have to remember that Jacob's in a difficult situation because he really has. And this is Laban's fault for agreeing to this agreement. But Jacob really has a conflict of interest, doesn't he? He really has a conflict of interest. Now, Laban agreed to it because as far as Laban was concerned, The outcome of the birth of the flocks and their color was just a totally arbitrary random, you know, luck of the draw thing. So how could he lose in this deal? Okay. but in reality, as it turns out, we see Jacob is working in a situation now for six years where he has a marked conflict of interest. He has his own flock and, and wanting to wanting to produce for his own flock. And then he has Laban's flock and. And and we see how he would always breed the strongest, you know, so that he could get more to his flock. And so so he's doing that. And we and we recognize that he's doing that. But I think we have to also, given what he says here, what he says to his wives and the fact that they don't challenge him on that point. I think we have to accept that that Jacob really was working hard for Laban for those six years. Now, he's having to do both. Okay, so admittedly, part of his time is devoted to his own flocks and the care for his own flocks. But it does seem, from this passage anyway, that he really has worked hard for Laban. But it's just, everything just keeps turning up roses for Jacob. And otherwise, for Laban. And the question is, why? Okay. Now, when we, if we had to just stop with chapter 30 and we didn't get chapter 31, we would say, well, it's because of everything Jacob did. But what strikes us as Jacob describes the situation to his wives, there's no mention of all these things that he did. There's no mention of the rods. There's no mention of the breeding. There's no mention of any of that stuff. He doesn't credit any of that stuff. And the reason is because Jacob has now discovered whatever he thought earlier. Jacob has now discovered that that didn't have anything to do with it. Okay? Well... So he uh, he he points out how hard he has worked. And then he says, he says, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Okay. now, uh, just as a side side note there, that it's not necessarily intended to be a a literal understanding of the number ten there. The number ten is oftentimes used in Scripture to give the idea of a fullness or completeness or the most possible okay so the point that jacob is making here is your 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 father has taken every possible opportunity to cheat me and change my wages now you remember in the original agreement agreement it was that jacob would get all the spotted and speckled and striped of the goats and all the black of the lambs of the sheep okay And that was the original agreement. But now, when we get down to verse 8, it says, uh, uh, If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth stripes. So now we discover that there's at least three examples there of a change in wages. Because originally, it was all the spotted and speckled, etc. Okay? And then eventually it gets to be just the speckled. And then it gets to be just the striped. But whatever stipulation that Laban laid upon the conditions of the employment, what happened? That's
1: the kind of animals
0: that came out. That's the kind of animals that came out of where? All of all the flock. So it wasn't just the ones that Laban or excuse me that Jacob was selectively breeding. But all the flock. Now I don't I don't take that to mean all to the exclusion of, of 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 any others, but that the vast majority of the flock was bringing forth the color that was appropriate for the wages that Laban said. So whenever he said one, that's what the flocks brought out. Whenever he said another, that's what the flocks brought out. And not just Laban's, not just Jacob's flocks, but Laban's flocks. Okay, that's just what happened? Okay. Now, now, while all this has happened, I don't know what Jacob is thinking, but it's quite clear here that something's going on besides his skill in animal husbandry. Something very profound is going on here. Okay. Well, the question is, what is going on? And, and then Jacob gives his explanation. And his explanation comes in the dream that he had. Now, when you read the commentaries on this dream, there are three basic ideas about this dream that uh, Laban relates to his wives here. One is that the dream came at the beginning of the six-year period. Okay? And as near as I can tell, that tends to be the majority opinion. In fact, if you have a New International, I think the New International even translates it so that you conclude uh, almost without any doubt that the dream came... At the beginning of the six-year period. Okay. And one of the strong arguments for that particular view. Is that that then explains what Jacob did in chapter 30. That then we understand if the dream came at the beginning of the six-year period. Then all this thing about Jacob trying to manipulate the the breeding. Is actually a result of this dream that God gave him. Okay. So that's. Uh that's uh, one perspective. And, and I think that's the strongest argument uh, in favor of that uh, position is that that would then explain Jacob's actions. Uh, the other possibility uh, is that uh, the dream came at the end of the six years. Okay, Now, there are some things in the passage that would kind of make you think that came at the beginning because of the way he says uh, uh in uh uh verse ten he says, And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes, and it seems it seems like or it could seem like there he's he's talking about something that's happened back in the past somewhere. Okay? So that, so there is that it's it seems that way. But when you when you go on down through the dream, uh you get to verse twelve and in verse twelve he says, Lift up your eyes now and see that all the male goats Excuse me, verse uh, 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. So there's an imperative command there given. In which God says, now arise and leave and go back to the land of your birth. Okay. If we assume that the dream was given at the beginning of the six year period. Then we have to conclude that Jacob disobeyed the Lord for six years. That he did not obey the imperative of God to leave now and go back to his land of his birth. Okay. Uh, in addition, uh, is, the, is the flow of the dream I want you to notice how he says the dream unfolded. What is the first thing that happened in his dream? Okay, so he's, he's having his dream and he looks and he, and he sees the male goats, the striped whatever mating. Okay, and he just sees that. And there's no context given to it, right? He just observes that. What's the next thing that happens in his dream? Okay. The angel of God speaks to him. And actually, we find out that's God himself because he says, I am the God of Bethel. Okay. So God speaks to him. So first he sees the sheep all mating and doing their thing. Then God speaks to him and introduces himself. Says, "Okay," or he doesn't introduce himself. He says, he, he, but "He," but he speaks to him and he calls his name. He says, "Jacob," and he says, "Here I am." Then what happens in his dream?
1: God points out very specifically what he wants
0: to Okay. Then God points out to him what he has already observed in his dream. So what I'm trying to point out to you, what I'm trying to show you, is that in his dream Jacob saw something happening, but there was no spiritual context to it. There was, no, there was no understanding of what it meant. Then God calls to him. And once God has his attention, then God points out to him the very thing he's already seen, but God gives a spiritual significance to it. And what is the spiritual significance that God gives to it?
2: To be the reason why they all brought forth the
0: spotted because you saw what Laban did for him. Exactly. Exactly. Because I saw what Laban, I saw all that Laban was doing to you. Okay. So in other words, the dream is in one sense a recapitulation of everything that has already unfolded. That all this stuff happened back in chapter 30 and there was all this mating and and, and now we find out from Jacob's description of it that even when he didn't have any control over it, they were bringing out the right colored animals to his advantage, okay? And we understand now that God was actually in the process of transferring. But Jacob didn't know that at first. Jacob didn't understand that at first. Yeah? I
1: think an interesting observation here is that if God was making the male goats that were street speculars spotted being the ones that were made yeah. the sheep,
0: yeah, it looks like something like that was going on. That God was orchestrating this whole process. And so what Jacob is so so what Jacob is discovering is even though I was doing all this stuff and I was working really hard, really what was really happening was that God was bringing all of this about because God saw what laid all that Laban had done to me. And so seeing that Laban, every time Laban changed my wages, then the flock would produce according to the changed wages. And every time he did that, that's what would happen. And he says, at the time, I didn't. What he's saying, basically what the dream is saying to us is at first I saw it happening and I had no context to it. I had no understanding of why it was happening. But when God spoke to me, then I understood how it was happening. Then I understood why it was happening. So if you haven't gathered that from, from what I've said so far, it's my conclusion, and I think I'm probably in the minority here, but it's my conclusion that the dream comes at the end of the six-year period. Okay? If you're of the other opinion, you're probably in the majority and you're in good company. But to me, the whole passage makes much more sense if I understand that the dream comes at the end of the six-year period and God tells him to leave and he immediately obeys. Okay? The, the third option is some some commentators suggest maybe there were two dreams and in Jacob's telling, he's conflated them into one. OK, well, I don't think I need to go there. OK, uh, I think uh, personally, I think the dream comes at the end. And it's so that actually Jacob's description of the dream is a description of what happened that we read about from the narrative in verse three. In verse three, the narrative tells us that God spoke to him. Now we understand how God spoke to him and exactly what God told him as Jacob narrates the dream in which God spoke to him and told him to go back home and said, I will be with you. Okay, so so now we discover that God has acted on Jacob's behalf because of what Laban has been doing to him. What does that sound like? Remember that promise to Abraham clear back in chapter 12? The one who blesses you, I will bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And as long as Laban was friendly to Jacob, Laban prospered. But when Laban started taking advantage of Jacob, when Laban started exploiting Jacob and started changing his wages and started cheating him and then his attitude changed towards him, when when he started cursing Jacob, then he was cursed. So, the first real cause of, Jacob's, of Laban's impoverishment was his relationship to the man upon whom the blessing of God resided. So, it wasn't Jacob's fault that the wealth was transferred. It was Laban's fault. We discover then, too, from, uh, from the comment of Jacob's wives that Laban was not real disciplined in how he handled the riches that he had. He says he has consumed all of our purchase price. So there are two things, I think, that led to Jacob's impoverishment. One was his relationship to the man upon whom the promise of God abides. And the second was his own undisciplined financial conduct. Okay? Uh, so, so we can't blame Jacob for Laban's impoverishment. It's a result of his own choice. It's a result of the decisions that he makes in his life. And so Jacob says, God has done this and now God has has uh, transferred all this wealth to me. And now God has said, has reminded me, he said, I am the God of Bethel. And he brings back to Jacob's mind that encounter 20 years before as he was leaving home, that encounter at Bethel where he encountered God at Bethel and God made that great promise to him. And Jacob woke up from his dream and he erected a pillar and anointed anointed a monument there. To say, I'm going to remember this. And then he made a vow. And his vow was, God, since you're going to do all this stuff for me, you will be my God. And now God is saying to him, as he's speaking to him, I am the God of Bethel. I am the God where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow. And now it's time for me to take you back home and fulfill and complete my promise to you that I made. And so then his wives say in uh, verse 14, Do we still have a portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Now, Jacob and uh, Rachel and Leah reach that crisis point in their own lives and they have to make a decision. Where is our portion and where is our inheritance? And now they know that their portion and their inheritance lie with the man of God and lie... In the land of God's promise and lie in the promise of God. And so, really, what we see happening here with Rachel and Leah is the same thing that we saw happen with Rebecca and the same thing we see happen many, many years later in the life of Ruth, isn't it? I've got to make a decision. I've got to make a choice between Haran and Canaan. I've got to make a choice between Moab and Israel. And the question is where's my inheritance? Where is my portion? And what what Rachel and Leah acknowledge and recognize here is they no longer have a portion or an inheritance in Haran. They no longer have a portion or inheritance in Laban's house. But their portion and their inheritance lie with Jacob and lie with Canaan and lie with the covenant. That's where their portion and their inheritance is. That's ultimately the decision that we all have to face, isn't it, in our lives? The question is where is our portion and where is our inheritance? And, and really, when we, at that point in time, when we came to Christ, what we were saying is, God is my portion. And God is my inheritance. And you would think that once we have made that choice and made that decision, that we would throw in our lot with God and we would walk with him and we would recognize that we have no portion or inheritance in this world. But oftentimes, that's not how we live, is it? Oftentimes we kind of live with one foot over here in Heron and one foot over here in Canaan. But Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And and as I as I read this over and over again this and thought over and over again about this passage, it's so striking to me that these women recognize so clearly they have no portion of or inheritance any longer in Laban? Or any longer in Laban's house, or any longer in Haran. They have nothing there. And and it just it impressed upon me in my own heart. What is my attitude towards this world? Do I do I find myself torn between two opinions? Do I find myself torn between You know, wanting the best that God can give me and wanting the best that the world can give me? You see, what happened was God transferred all the wealth of Laban to Jacob. And that's not the last time He does that. When Israel leaves Egypt, what happens? They plunder Egypt. They walk away with all the wealth of Egypt. And that is not the last time that happens. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. And this morning, as I was just putting my last thoughts together on this particular point, the words of Jim Elliot came to my mind again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what Rachel and Leah are doing. They're giving up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. And when we follow God and we're tempted and we're enticed by the world and to think that our portion of this world, if we would just remember, we are no fools if we give up what we cannot keep in order to gain what we cannot lose. And in the end, all the wealth of this world is going to go to who? It's not going to go to the great. It's not going to go to the powerful. It's not going to go to the wise. It's not going to go to the clever. It's not going to go to the financial geniuses. It's not going to go to all the people who invested their money right and did everything exactly right. All the wealth of this world, all the riches of this world are not going to go to them. It's going to go to the meek. It's going to go to those who follow God. It's going to go to those who identify with Jacob and Canaan and the covenant of God. Okay, well, next week we'll look at the great escape.